Welcome to Manufacturing Tomorrow, focusing on advanced manufacturing innovations, solutions, and partnerships that exist in our region now and in the future. Greetings, and welcome to Manufacturing Tomorrow. This show is brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University, and it focuses on the issues, challenges, and opportunities facing the manufacturing sector in the state of Ohio. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Ned Hill. Ned is probably the best-known person in the state of Ohio when it comes to economic development, urban public policy, and as importantly, manufacturing. Ned came to Ohio in 1985, having accepted a position at Cleveland State, and 30 years later, he is the Dean and Professor of Economic Development at the Maxine Goodman Levin School and the College of Urban Affairs. In addition to his demanding day job, Ned is also a senior fellow of the Brookings Institute, where he's affiliated with the Metropolitan Policy Program. He is a non-resident visiting fellow at the Institute of Politics at UC Berkeley, where he's working on building resilient regions. He is a past and current member of the advisory board of the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, in particular, the Manufacturing Extension Program, and he currently serves as a director of Magnet, which is the Manufacturing Extension Program in Northeast Ohio. A noted author on economic development and urban public policy, he is also an expert in manufacturing-related issues, and we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Ned, welcome. Thank you, Marty. It's an absolute delight. It's uh, really great to have you here. And one thing I love when I hear you speak is you always talk about your team, the team that you've created and the, and the incredible job that they've done. Would you tell us a little about your team? What makes them so unique? What makes your team so successful? And if we were to quiz them, what's the one project that they've really resonated with over the last five years? <laughs> the one product for that team is going to be whichever one gave them the most pain while we were doing it, or hopefully had the, had the largest impact in ch making change happen. Um, as the dean of a college, I'm just blessed uh, with having a good group of faculty and a terrific group of soft hour researchers. And these, these are full-time research professionals, uh, which means that as a college, we have worked hard to have an ethic of a professional services company. Gotcha. Uh, we, we're serious academics. Our work is grounded in data. It, uh, we, our best projects are those that are framed by data and traditional quantitative research techniques, but then are filled in by spending a lot of time talking with people that are in the positions and in the industry. Those are the most successful ones. Got it. The team itself changes constantly. Uh, there are some important leadership parts. Our Center for Economic Development, led by Dr. Ziano Austrian and Dr. Irena Lendl, both perfect examples of why we need immigration reform in this country, because one's an Israeli, one's a Ukrainian, has um, developed terrific expertise on economic impact, and we are the largest shale gas um, research center in the state of Ohio. Uh, and in fact, the Allegheny Conference just gave us a contract to take our Ohio-based research into Pennsylvania and West Virginia. So along, that's a terrific group. We also have, um, when it comes to the manufacturing area, uh, we partner very closely with the MEP program. Uh, and by the way, we are the only university or higher educational institution in the state that's a member of the Ohio Manufacturers Association. And we find that partnership to be one to give us phenomenal insight, um, as well as access to, to, to wonderful questions to provide answer to. Super. We'll make sure Eric Berkman gets that plug in other schools. Listen. Yeah, it's a, I was down here. I did tell the, State, the Ohio State University that the Cleveland State University <laughs> beat them to the membership, but please join us because that's how we get to um, – 
to, to really learn more about this industry and help affect positive change. So one of the things, in effect, you've done is you've taken that academic excellence and scholarship and mm-hmm. research, layered it with a 24-7 team, so when the phone rings, you have the capacity to respond and to transfer that knowledge out into the sectors? That's correct. We, we don't think in terms of semesters. We don't think of course release. We think of billable hours. Got it. And uh, But the flip side of it is being part of a university, we stay with the project till it's done. And so we've eaten time on projects, but we'll eat time on the project if it has important, if it's important to the client and it's important to the state. Um, and so when we did the first economic development strategy during the Taft administration in 2004, the state's still working with it. Um, that was one where we, I believe we put in two months of free time because of the importance to the state. Absolutely. And understood that we really know how to underbill. <laughs> it's a great art that we all have. Um, along that line, you and your team back in my era in Cleveland wrote two of the most quoted reports uh, that I ever read about manufacturing Ohio. One was your Ohio Competitive Advantage Report on Manufacturing mm-hmm. Productivity. Was The other was your industry-based competitive strategy for Ohio uh, in 2005, and a central theme of both reports, if I remember well, was Ohio makes things. As you look at Ohio in 2015 and as an academic, mm-hmm. what report card would you give us in terms of implementing the key recommendations and putting the initiatives in place? Well, probably B, which is good. That's pretty good. It's really good because it because uh, we wrote the, the, the 2004 report we wrote for the Taft administration. Um, and the Strickland administration used it very aggressively. Lee Fisher, in particular, when he was director of development, um, did a lot of ac- activity around it. And then um, with Jobs Ohio, as we formed, uh, we found the first thing they pulled out was that report. Uh, and uh, we've been working closely with Jobs Ohio ever since. Uh, and the, man- the manufacturing message is quite strong. The 2000 report, um, Ohio's competitive advantage, was um, that was our partnership where that's where our partnership with the Ohio Manufacturers Association began. And that really started the conversation about changing the business tax code in the state, uh, where somewhere in that report there's a chart that showed that manufacturers paid five times the state tax load of other sectors in the economy. And that was because of the way the tangible personal property tax and the corporate franchise tax worked. And so we put together with um, uh, our uh, with the Manufacturers Association, their members through the research, a set of guidelines for what would be an effective form of business taxation. Uh, Bill Wilkerson, who was uh, at Treasury and uh, at that point, uh, 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 taxation, so that Governor Taft was able to do business tax reform that encouraged the investment in capital equipment. That we got an A on. Well, so our listeners know uh, not only that was that report well read, it had a big impact, and it earned you the nickname, the Godfather of Tax Reform. Yeah, and I went out and bought a black shirt and a white tie, and it was <laughs> it was fun. I, the funny thing coming from this is I, I like to think that I am nonpartisan in everything I do, that it's issues that drive me and trying to move Ohio's economy forward. That's what our team's all about. Um, and... Um, it is just hysterical that people are trying to figure out what our political or ideological orientation is. All right? So I'll let you all know, our, 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 our orientation is markets. Markets work. Um, and then we are Ohio pragmatists. Uh, and I have had reporters um, try, find, try to find our politi- my, political ori- my political registration. And I love it when uh, Dan Greeno from the, from the dispatch keeps on referring to me as Ohio's noted conservative economist. <laughs> he hasn't heard some of the other stuff we talk about. <laughs> I love that. Um, 
Based on your success in Ohio, you're now doing a lot of work in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. As you look at these other mm-hmm. Midwestern states, are the challenges and the opportunities similar, or do we each have some unique challenges and opportunities? Everything, well, there is a similarity across the entire industrial Midwest, but each has different industrial heritages, each has different competitive advantage, and each has a set of products that's different. People assume that because of the volume of work we've done in manufacturing that I go preach manufacturing everywhere and manufacturing is good for everybody. Well, it's not true. Um, Some places have competitive advantage. We do. The source that competitive advantage changes, and other places aren't there. Uh, So if we think about Ohio today, uh, and we're sitting here as oils drop by 50%, the value of the dollar is increasing dramatically. So once again, you know, the invisible hand of the marketplace is talking to us in sign language and depends on which finger you, you interpret that gives you where we think that's ha- heading. But um, the competitive advantage sitting here is um, the spot price of methane or natural gas gives us a 33% price cost advantage over the rest of the United States, 50% cost advantage over Europe. And that's going to offset the increasing value of the dollar to a certain extent. Very much so. Uh, we also, <clears throat> transportation logistics, hugely important to where we are. And as the auto companies in particular came out of the Great Recession and had to deal with the damage of the Fukushima earthquake followed by the floods in Thailand, you know, we had car companies shut down for almost six months because of those two events. It doesn't even talk about the shutdown of the, of the big three. Now there's strong pressure to um, shorten supply chains. And that helps Ohio and Indiana as we're doing this. The uh, work ethic, despite you know the issues we have and we're very aware of, we know that the benchmark versus other parts of the state, it's a very different set of work ethic and skills. Yeah, absolutely. But I, it, at the same time, we have to figure out how we address the issue about what's the future of skills and workforce in manufacturing. Because, you know, as your listeners may know, because they're at the front lines, we're at the early stages of the third industrial revolution, and we aren't ready for it. Let's stay on that theme a little. Um, You know, I came back to Ohio, and one of the things I find interesting when I give talks is when I say that Ohio is the key supplier for Airbus and Boeing, everyone looks up and says, really? As as I did until Gary Connolly and our good friends at Texel did the survey work and showed the data. Exactly. The good thing about data if you pay attention to them, you'll eventually get it right. So as we look to the future to address some of the core issues in manufacturing, how do we build a portfolio that, one, deals with large firms as well as that key supply chain, and two, rewards companies in the state as much as we try to reward those we attract to the state? How do you balance all that in your business? Well, the balance really is one of opportunity, who comes at your door and who you recruit. So let's think about this big firm versus small firm differential. We did When we did work in both Pennsylvania and here, we found out that big firms are really good at discipline manufacturing, superb at lean. Um, they were really good at forming strategy, and they were terrible at sticking to a strategy. They were the flavor of the month club. If you looked at the small to mid-sized firms, uh, they were terrible at strategy. Um, lean really depended on whether senior management and ownership really understood lean. And we're highly dependent on their supply chain and didn't have any economic independence. So if you look at them, it means that the response to the very big firms is a labor supply response. We're going to work with you to get the talent that you need so you run your operations as you see fit. When it comes to small to mid-sized firms, it's a combination of dealing with market failure, which is mostly on the human capital side, 
But there's also management failure of trying to find ways that we aren't going to run their business. I'm an academic. I'm, I don't sit in the C-suite, which is some guy's desk, and, um, and deal with the day-to-day issues. But we have to, to be in a position to help that company on process innovation, product innovation, um, the way they diversify their um, uh, their catalog of products. And more importantly, are there ways in which they can get some sort of competitive advantage in terms of intellectual property or service differentiation that gives them some margin in their business? Got it. Now, I'm an economist. We know what markets do well. Markets hate margin. Markets destroy margin. And if you think that God has given you margin and it's yours for a long period of time, your next conversation better be with your future bankruptcy lawyer. Yeah, as someone that used to work in the U.S. Senate, we used to joke about a man of 16 is a liberal, a man of 60 is a conservative, right? The heart and the head. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, as I sit here, I tell you, when I was 16, I thought I could write policies to solve everything. Now I look for market-based mechanisms. Mm -hmm. They're more effective, they're lower cost, and you can see a profound impact quickly. The only way to get to scale. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an sent, Oh, the market is a thing of beauty. <laughs> so no one's going to guess that I'm an economist. Never. Um, recognizing your role as a leading faculty member and recognizing today's show is sponsored by Ohio State University and the Ohio Fan- Manufacturing Institute. When you talk to employers, what is the key gap that exists right now in terms of our educational products between two-year and four-year schools? And what do we need to do to provide industry with the kind of workforce that they need? Well, first off, there's not one gap. Manufacturing lost so many jobs and had such a difficult time in the last decade uh, that manufacturers themselves, particularly small to mid-sized manufacturers, lost their ability to train. They went from three people HR shops to one. uh, And training was something that was just seen as pure cost. And it was only big companies that had no layoff policies that invested that downtime in training. Think about Lincoln and Honda um, and maybe some of their suppliers. But if you're um, a low-margin company with a lot of retained earnings, that just wasn't possible. Second thing is if you stood up and stand up today and tell mommy or guidance counselor, I want to go work in a factory, you'll get a dope slap. So we have to – there, so that means that, one, we have to understand what the, what the manufacturing skills are of the future. We have to understand that, yeah, temp to perm is a permanent part of hiring, uh, but there is always going to be churn and temp with the low-skilled part of the industry. But the most important thing that we've learned is that third industrial revolution is that we're digitizing the factory floor. So that means it is a skilled technician, someone who could think with their head and act with their hands, is a skill set that we have to work with industry to figure out what that means. Germany's there. Japan is largely there. In Germany, it's called mechatronics. It's mechanical and electrical computer and, and doing it in a way so you're solving actually problems, actual problems. Here, engineering technology is kind of looked down upon, secondary thing, what the community college is doing, it's blue collar. Well, no, it's a lot more than that because the engineering technicians are the, are the shop floor factory leaders of the future, and the future owners of small to mid-sized businesses are either going to come out of sales or they're going to come out of operations. So we're killing ourselves that way. Um, the second major problem we have is uh, we have to teach Ohio's potential workforce how to pee in a cup correctly uh, <laughs> because they're flunking way too many drug tests. So. Yes. 
marijuana use and opiate addiction and opiate use, particularly you know with the opiate stuff we're really hearing a lot coming out of Appalachia, um, is it's no longer a social problem. It's more important than that it's an economic development problem. Um, and what we're also finding is that career centers are telling us they're getting kids not going into the manufacturing track because uh, if they're caught blowing dope uh, or they flunk the, um, the P-test, uh, they um, are flunk out. So really understanding what the, what the cost of decisions are mm-hmm. and whether we have a bunch of kids that are volunteering for a life of stupidity, uh, that's, that's a that's bad a thing. That's a big challenge. A key theme we've had from uh, some of our prior guests who either run large or small companies is the ability to attract the workforce of tomorrow and for them to have the skills. They all refer mm-hmm. to the issue of the drug testing. But the other one is this idea that these kids need a, a suite of skill sets. That's Being correct. Being a electrical engineer is nice, but I want someone that can do a little of everything. Right. It's the work-ready engineer. So I think we're going to increasingly see a marketplace where the the technically-based product development, uh, the working for the R&D labs like you know GE down in Evandale, Honda up in Marysville, um, Lincoln and Parker and uh, up in the Cleveland area. Gould has a pretty good research shop. They're going to be after the master's degree in engineer. And they're the ones who are really going to be clean sheeting things and bringing forward technology issues, problems. But it's the BA in engineering. But I think that you're going to see increasing demand for a cross-functionally trained Bachelor of Engineering with management skills. Maybe the, like the industrial engineer used mm-hmm, to be. Mm-hmm. But the person has to be conversant in mechanical, electrical, um, computers. Network processing. Yeah. Like you said, robotics, automation. Also be able to understand how supply chain works. Um, Ask to understand lean um, and more than understand it. The best firms have it as part of their cultural imperative. And uh, so it's it's a pretty complicated suite. I mean, people might say you might not be doing differential equations. Instead, you'll be doing something much harder, which is trying to figure out how to lead people. Um, So that's the point where the United States just is not there yet. Um, The Fraunhofer's are ahead of us in Germany. The technical universities are ahead of us in Germany and Japan. A flexible workforce that doesn't need a lot of supervision, that's deeply involved in the future of the company, uh, that has the power to suggest changes, that understands how to be um, a collaborator with the robotics. That's the future. And we're already starting to see it in the very big firms. It's um, how we get the price points down and get away from proprietary software so that we've digitized the factory floor of the small, pardon me, the mid-sized firms. That's a huge challenge. And that's an educational challenge. Um, you know, the career center is going to claim a chunk of this. The community college is going to take, claim a chunk of this. Universities aren't engaged. Um, the conversations we had today with uh, the Ohio State University, conversations we're having in Cleveland State, I'm pleased the universities seem that they're getting ready to, to attack this jointly, knowing that we've got different markets in terms of where we are as universities, but where we are geographically. And trying to figure out what this new skill set is, that's the best service we can provide to Ohio's manufacturing employers. I think they would resonate that based on the past shows. Another thing that when you speak you are passionate about, you have this first idea that's the importance of cultural change, both at the organizational level and at the regional level. Mm -hmm. The second is the concept of product life cycles. And what intrigues me is how you use these to map 
the economic well-being of both a firm and a region. Would you comment a little on both of those and how important they are to our future success? Okay, folks, Marty passed the test. He paid attention <laughs> yesterday. He took some notes. Okay, um, let's, let's take, take it apart. I once did a interview with a person with a um, tech center of a large domestically headquartered OEM, right? So I'm not telling you who this person is, who d- said, in our company, we define cultures everything that's too hard to change. That's pretty damning. I never bought a car from that company again. Uh, the difference when it comes to culture change is how do you really make certain that you are working in a teamed environment? Make certain that you're respecting the individual. How do you do game sharing in a, in a reasonable way? How do you make certain that the employee understands that management is in the same fight, the same game with them? Uh, ownership of the process is hugely important. Hugely important. There's, you know, I learned a lot from a plant manager in Dayton. His name was Tom Green. He ran the Delphi brake plant and actually was the one who had to shut it down. And Delphi charged him to lose money. He had 300% labor turnover, and he made money because he was a true servant leader, and he understood that success was built on team. And he couldn't help himself. This is the way he managed. Uh, and, and you'll see this in other parts of the state. I mean, the Lincoln story about the, the way they screen and the way they pay and their incentive structure is legend. Uh, so, but, they, but now here we get to the real big challenge of culture, and this is a management issue. Um, if you're part of the supply chain, you're tier two, tier three, it's all about following the customer, keeping costs down, uh, and you know that you know it's a generic product and, man, I could be knocked off any moment. So therefore, for the management, everything is living inside the company and working on the problem, really working in the company itself. The challenge we offer to management says essentially you are going to follow your customer right into the grave. It's maybe a Christensen innovator's dilemma issue, but it's much more small to mid-sized manufacturing issue because that leadership team never feels they have enough time to work on the company. Uh, and they often have an AT&T board. Remember the friends and family oh, plan? Yeah. <laughs> so there's no one to tell the C-level executive, the C-suite, all one of them, no, uh, or to hold them up or make them reflective of what's there. So. When we talk to, um, to small to mid-sized firms, really, really saying that, well, when your business is in crisis, you don't have enough time to work on your company because you're too busy saving the business. And when things are going good, you don't have enough time to work on your business because you're too, working too hard to get the product out the door. Both of those are recipes for a very terrible future. So um, that's where the culture and teaming come together. Product life cycle is a different thing. Um, in Ohio, we have capital intense, technologically, technologically rich products that are old. And if they're old, they grow slow. So we are now quantitatively, this is Fran Stewart is working on this project with me um, at, at Cleveland State. Uh, what, Clan, what Fran and I have been able to do, Fran's really done the hard programming on this, we have modeled uh, the traded sector of the economy, the, that, the stuff that you ship out that, that makes the engine hum, and taken each of those industries that are in the traded sector in, the, in each metropolitan area by where that industry is nationally on the product life cycle. So we're able to say, to look at an economy and say, economy is nothing but a portfolio of products, the same way your stock portfolio, your retirement portfolio is a, is a portfolio. 
And you need some stable, good earners. That would be our traditional industrial base. But you also need, if you're going to get growth, you need some products that are growing and moving quickly. So we have formed these portfolios for, we've doing this with eight metro regions, and we're looking at the change over time. Mm. So if, if people really want to say, well, the economic problem here is, oh, it's labor. Oh, the economic problem here is energy cost. Oh, the economic problem here is that we're at the cool place and nobody wants to live here. You know, bull hockey to all of it, right? The real problem here is innovation and the ability to fail fast, fail cheap, innovate on the margins, don't swing for the home runs, get those bunch singles and doubles going. And how do, you, how do you get growth in your company by having growing products? Now, the secret behind all this, and it's one of the challenges the MEP program has, is many small to mid-sized businesses really don't want to be high-growth businesses. They are lifestyle businesses. They want a good, good income, really after span of control, the pride of ownership, the I don't have to listen to anybody. That's a real different recipe from trying to, to grow, to manage a high-growth, thinly capitalized business. And we have to be able, in our work, is quickly understand which business it is and realize the, cult, the cultures there is different. And for success, that lifestyle business is going to have to become a high-growth business because it's going to die. So as we do our assessment of companies, we, we, we put them in categories. The gold medal winners are the product innovators. Uh, the companies that have some sort of intellectual property, and that intellectual property has margin, and they keep on developing it. The problem with Search of Excellence was you had a bunch of technical, technologically-based innovators, but they rested on their IP, their cost structure got out of whack, and they eventually bankrupted. Can, can we say Kodak uh, or Xerox? Or go through the list that was in Search of Excellence. The, the silver medal winners in this competition are those global global companies that have highly connected supply chains and customer chains, and they're really deploying information technology as their competitive advantage, and they figured out how to use service as the way of doing the innovation. And these companies frequently buy their innovation on the outside because they're pretty lousy managers of innovation. Bronze medal winners of the American economy. Those are the lifestyle firms. They've got a good set of products, they're cost competitive, the product's terrific, um, they follow the customer pretty well, but they aren't interested in growth. And frankly, they don't have the type of inclusive management that the best companies have. And that was the core of the American economy from World War II up until the 2000 recession. Now, the length of time that you can have that sheltered competitive space because of the globalization of the economy is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So what's going to happen is you're going to respond to this. And either you're going to go up to the silver medal status or else you are going to go to, to um, the um, next level down. Let's give them a lead medal. And that, that company is a, is a one-trick pony. They've got one product, one customer. They're highly dependent on those two things. And when that customer goes or when that product changes, they go down to the casket-level company, which are dead and dying firms in auction markets. I love ending on a high note, Marty. We love a challenge. Ned, you've advised probably every governor, key local and industry officials for 30 years. Final question. If you're testifying tomorrow in either D.C. or in Columbus at the State House, oh, I can't wait for this one. What's the best recommendation you can make about what, in particular, the universities need to do to better support 
the need for innovation, the need for innovative product development to facilitate the transition to this new industrial revolution. Well, Marty, I wouldn't, wouldn't say a word about that in Columbus. I wouldn't say a word about it in Washington. I'd say a lot about it to the leadership of the educational institutions, and that is engaged scholarship. Curiosity-driven scholarship is the wonder of the university, and curiosity-driven scholarship is going to give you the undiscovered finds that could be the next integrated circuit. But there's a whole end of scholarship, which means that you engage with your community, you engage with your corporate base, you engage with the public sector, and you find real problems and challenges, and you try to figure out how to solve them. Trying to solve them in isolation means that you're, you don't really get to respond to the, to the context that company or that government exists in. Now, it doesn't mean that it's a consulting report or it's a one-off and you move on. We still have to do our scholarship. We still have to publish it. We still have to do it peer review. But we have to recognize that if we truly are, universities become servant leaders. And if the Ohio State University is going to live up to its history as a land-grant university, you can't do that in isolation. It means that engaged scholarship has to be recognized. It has to be rewarded. We have to figure methods for doing it. And frankly, frequently, let me get some more Fs in there, it means you've got to bust through disciplinary silos because problems are no longer defined by discipline. So you really need a multifunctional team for which you can, you can get your glory as the individual investigator, but that team helps get you there. Every single exciting issue over 30 years that I've been involved with, it's been that multifunctional team that's gotten mm-hmm. there. I do some stuff on my own. I got a little Lone Ranger, and being a servant leader doesn't mean you don't have an ego. My ego is that of Montana rapidly going to Alaska. But you got to make certain that we engage with these communities. Ohio is just an immensely fascinating place. America's problems are Ohio's problems. If we solve Ohio's problems, we're on the route to solving America's problems. And we get to be a place where this gets to be fun. Working in isolation for for our deeply introverted colleagues, thank God for universities, they get a paycheck. But for some of the rest of us, you understand that yeah, we write in isolation and we think and, you know, we never stop working that way. Or some of the best ideas take place when you're in the shower or something like that. But it's stimulated by that interaction with people out there in the real world. And there is no more fun than that. 